0: Chapter Eleven of Silas Strong, Emperor of the Woods, by Irving Batchelor. This recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eleven. The sky was clear and the rays of the sun fell hot upon the dry woods that morning when Master and the children and their uncle Silas reached the landing at Catamount. Its eastern shore lay deep under cool shadows. The water plane was like taut canvas on which a glowing picture of wooded shore and sky and mountain had been painted. Golden robins darted across a cove and sang in the treetops. Master righted his canoe and put the children aboard and took his place in the stern seat. "'I'll slip over to r-robin,' said the emperor as he shoved the canoe into the deep water with him to slip meant to go and in his speech he always slipped from one point to another master pushed through the pads and slowly cut the still shadow the inverted towers of painter mountain began to quake beneath his canoe sue sat on the bow and Saki behind her the curly hair of the girl which had indeed the silken yellow of a corn tassel showed beneath her little pink bonnet. Something about her suggested the rose half open. Socky wore his rubato and necktie and best suit of clothes. They were both in purple and fine linen, so to speak. No one had thought to tell them better. As they came near the point of Birch Cove, Master began to turn the bow and check his headway. There, on a moss-covered rock, stood the maiden whom he had seen the day before a crow with a small scarlet ribbon about his neck clung upon her shoulder the girl was looking at the two children the bird rose on his wings and after a moment of hesitation flew towards them the ends of the scarlet ribbon fluttering in the air socky drew back as the crow lighted on a gunwale near his side "'Sue clung to the painter and sat looking backward with curiosity and fear in her face. "'The crow turned his head, surveying them as if he were, indeed, quite overcome with amazement. "'Sit still,' said Master quietly. "'He won't hurt you.' "'The bird rose in the air again, and, darting downward, seized a shiny buckle above the visor of the boy's cap which lay on the canoe bottom, and bore cap and all to his young mistress. Saki began to cry with alarm. Master reassured him and paddled slowly towards the moss-covered rock. Silently his bow touched the shore. He stuck his paddle in the sand. He stepped into the shallow water and helped the children ashore. In the edge of the tamaracks, and now partly hidden by their foliage, Miss Dunmore stood looking at the children. Her figure was tall, erect, and oddly picturesque. Somehow she reminded Master of a deer halted in its flight by curiosity. Her face, charming in form and expression, betrayed a childish timidity and innocence. Her large blue eyes were full of wonder. Pretty symbols of girlish vanity adorned her figure. There were fresh violets on her bodice and a delicate lacy length of the moss vine woven among her curls. The girl's hair, wonderfully full and rich in color, had streaks of gold in it. A beaded belt and holster of Indian make held a small pistol. "'Miss Dunmore, I believe,' he ventured. The girl retired a step or two and stood looking timidly, first at him and then at the children. Her manner betrayed excitement. She addressed him with hesitation. "'My—my name is Edith Dunmore,' she said, in a tone just above a whisper. With trembling hands, she picked a spray of tamarack that for a moment obscured her face. "'You are the nun of the Green Vale. I have heard of you,' said Master. "'I—I I must not speak to you, sir,' she said as she retreated a little farther. "'My name is Master—Robert Master,' said he. "'I shall stay only a minute, but these children would like to know you.' While speaking he had returned to his canoe. Socky and Sue stood still, looking up at the maiden. "'Children!' she exclaimed in a low, sweet, tremulous tone as she took a step towards them. "'The wonderful little children?' "'Sometimes I think they are brownies,' he answered with a smile of amusement. "'But their uncle calls them little fawns. Her right hand, which held the spray of tamarack, fell to her side. Her left hand clung to a branch on which the crow sat a little above her shoulder, and her cheek lay upon her arm as she looked down wistfully, fondly, at the children. Her blue eyes were full of curiosity. Saki and Sue regarded the beautiful maiden with a longing akin to that in her in all there was a deep mysterious desire which had grown out of nature's need in them for a mother in her for the endearing touch of those newly come into the world and for their high companionship moreover these two little ones who had now a dim and imperfect recollection of their mother had shaped an ideal partly through the help of gordon to take its place Therein they saw a lady, young and beautiful, and more like this one who stood before them than like any they had yet beheld. Sue grasped the hand of her brother, and both stood gazing at the maiden, but neither spoke nor moved for a moment. Edith Dunmore leaned forward a little, looking into their faces. "'Can you not speak to me?' she asked socky began to be embarrassed his eyes fell he shook his head doubtfully edith dunmore looked up at the stalwart figure of the young man their eyes met she quickly turned away the tame crow on the bough above began to laugh and chatter as if he thought it all an excellent joke may i take them in my arms she asked with hesitation yes but i warn you they have a way of stealing one's heart ah croaked the little crow in a warning cry as if he had seen at once the peril of it she had begun to move slowly almost timidly towards the children she knelt before them and took the little hand of sue in hers and looked upon it with wonder she touched it with her lips she pressed it against her cheek She trembled beneath its power. The touch of the child's hand was, for her, it would almost seem, like that of one of the eyes of Bartimius. Suddenly, as by a miracle, Edith Dunmore rose out of childhood. The veil of the man was rent away. She was a woman fast coming into riches of unsuspected inheritance she put her arms about the two and gently drew them towards her and held them close her embrace and the touch of her breast upon theirs were grateful to them and they kissed her her eyes were wet her sweet voice full of familiar but uncomprehended longing when she said dear little children tut tut said the tame crow who had crept to the end of his branch where he stood looking down at them. In a moment he began to break the green twigs and let them fall on the head of his mistress. Sue felt the hair and looked into the face and eyes of the maiden with wondering curiosity. Saki ran his fingers over the beaded belt. Both had a suspicion which they dared not express that here was an angel in some way related to their mother. "'You are a beautiful lady,' said the boy, with childish frankness. Master has often tried to describe the scene. He confesses that words, even though vivid and well-spoken, cannot make one to understand the something which lay beneath all said and done, and which went to his heart, so that for a time he turned and walked away from them. "'Do you remember when you were fairies?' the girl asked of the children. The latter shook their heads. "'Tell us about the fairies,' Sue proposed, timidly. "'They are old, old people, so my father has told me,' said the beautiful lady. They came into this world thousands of years ago riding in a great cloud that was drawn by wild geese. The fairies came down, each on a big flake of snow and got off in the treetops and never went away. At first they were the teeniest folks, so that a hundred of them could stand on a maple leaf, and very, very old. My father says they were never young in their lives, and I guess they have always lived. They rode around on the backs of the birds and saw everything in the world, and had such a good time they all began to grow young. Now, as they grew young, they grew bigger and bigger, and every spring a lot more of the little old people came out of the sky and began to grow young like the others. And by and by, some of them were as big as your thumb and bigger. "'How big do they grow?' the boy asked. "'As they grow young, they keep growing bigger. By and by, the birds cannot carry them. Then they have to walk, and for the first time in their lives they begin to get hungry and learn to cry, and nobody knows what is the matter with them. The fairies complain about the noise they make, and one night a little old woman takes them down into the woods to get them out of the way. And violets grow wherever their feet touch the ground, and they sit in a huckleberry bush and make a noise like the cry of a spotted fawn. The fawns hear them and know very well what they are crying for. The fawns have always loved them. When the fairies come down out of the treetops they always ride on the fawns, and where they have sat you can see a little white spot about as big as a flake of snow. That's why the fawns are spotted, and you know how shy they are. They mustn't let anybody see the fairies. Well, the young ones sit there in the huckleberry bush, crying. The little animals come and lick their faces and tell them of a wonderful spring where milk flows out of a little hill and has a magic power in it, for even if one were crying and tasted the milk he always became happy. The young fairies climb on the backs of the fawns and ride away by and by the fawns come to their mothers and their mothers tell them that no one who has teeth in his head can drink at the spring so they wonder what to do by and by they go to the woodpecker for he has a pair of forceps and can pull anything and the woodpecker pulls their teeth then the young fairies do nothing but ride around each on a spotted fawn and drink at the wonderful spring and grow fat and lazy, and the birds pull every hair out of their heads to build nests with. They live down in the woods, for they cannot climb the trees any more, and one day they fall asleep for the first time and tumble off the fawns and lie on the ground dreaming. They dream of the fairy heaven where they shall grow old again and each shall have a mother and his own wonderful spring of milk now that day trees begin to grow in the ground beneath them the trees grow fast and all in a night they lift the sleeping fairies far above the ground the wind rocks them and they lie dreaming in the treetops until a crane as he is crossing over the sky looks down and sees them and goes and takes them away "'You know, the cranes have to go through the sky every day "'and pick up the young fairies.' She paused and sat holding the hands of little Sue and looking at them as if their beauty were a great wonder. "'Where do they take them?' Master was returning, and the girl rose like one afraid and whispered to the children, "'I will tell you if, if you will come again.' "'I shall ask your father if I may come and see you,' said Master as he came near. "'Ha, ha, ha!' the bird croaked, fluttering in the air and lighting on the shoulder of his mistress. The children stepped aside quickly as if in fear of it. She took the crow on her finger and held him at arm's length. He turned and tried to catch an end of the scarlet ribbon. She was a picture then to remind one of the days of falconry. She ran a few paces up a green aisle in the thicket. She stopped where the young man was unable to see her. "'Could could you bring the children again, sir?' she asked. "'On Thursday, at the same hour,' he answered. He heard again the warning of the little crow and her footsteps growing fainter in the dark trail of the deer. End of chapter 11